My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, episode 29, Foreigners in the French Army. Today, we're going to be doing something a little different. In today's episode, we're going to be taking a pause from the main show and instead interviewing historian Christopher Tarzi. Dr. Tarzi specialises in the experience of non-citizen soldiers in the French Revolutionary Army. Who do I mean by this? Well, think of European soldiers who fought for the French, individuals who comprised the Swiss, the German, the Irish regiments, for example. Also think of other foreigners, such as American volunteers, as well as black and Jewish soldiers. But before I introduce Chris and elaborate more on today's agenda, let's quickly discuss the fact that this is episode 29, and the last episode was episode 26. Yes, I'm not known for my mathematical skills, but they're not that bad either. Episodes 27 and 28 do exist, but they're both bonus episodes available exclusively to Patreon supporters of the show. Episode 27 covers the infamous Nasi Mutiny, a bloody insurrection in 1790 which remains bitterly controversial. In that episode, we discuss three key things. Firstly, we examine the state of the French armed forces prior to the revolution and all the numerous problems crippling their effectiveness. Secondly, we discuss the Nasi Mutiny itself, as well as the multitude of controversies surrounding the affair. Finally, we explore the reforms the insurrection inspired, themselves controversial and important for the coming war discussed in the main show. Episode 28 is a thorough introduction to the movers and shakers of the new Brissouin ministry. This includes de Maurier, the new foreign minister, as well as Madame Roland, an individual described by some as the heart of the Girondin party. Both of these episodes are now available for Patreon supporters, and I've put instructions on Patreon for how you can download bonus episodes and episode extras into your preferred podcast app, depending on the app that you use. As always, a huge thank you to all the Patreon supporters of the show, and I'll do a full recap of all the new Patreon supporters in episode 30, when we return to the main narrative. A reminder that if you're keen to support Grey History, while also gaining access to a range of bonus content, there's a link in the show notes and on the website. Getting back to this episode, however, today's interview can be broken down into roughly three key sections. Firstly, we're going to discuss foreigners fighting for old regime France. Just who comprised the foreign regiments? Why did the old regime support them? And how many foreigners found themselves fighting beneath the French flag? Secondly, we're going to discuss the role of foreign soldiers during the initial revolutionary months, and how this ties into the eventual hostility that the National Assembly adopted towards outsiders in the French armed forces. Importantly, we're also going to discuss other factors that might have been driving this hostility, 
such as the new ideas surrounding citizenship and nationalism. Finally, we're going to examine the experiences of American, black and Jewish soldiers, as well as how their experiences differed with their non-French European counterparts. Needless to say, while the French Revolution preached equality and fraternity, there was a considerable disconnect between the cosmopolitan principles of the revolution and the experience of foreigners in the French Revolutionary Army. Before I get into it, I should of course introduce the star of this episode. A historian specialising in the French Revolution, Dr Christopher Tazi received his PhD in 2013 from John Hopkins University. Chris has written extensively on the experiences of non-citizen soldiers during the Revolutionary Era, and his first book, Nationalising France's Army, will be the inspiration for our conversation today. A man of many interests, Chris has also written on the history and culture of technology, and currently teaches in the Science and Technology Studies Department of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. In addition to teaching, Chris's current research efforts focus on the history of decentralization from political, social, and technological perspectives. So, with Chris introduced and the scene set, let us begin our deep dive into the experience of foreign soldiers in the French Revolutionary Army. Welcome to Grey History, Episode 29, Foreigners in the French Army. Thank you again for taking the time to come on the show and discuss the experiences of non-citizen soldiers during the revolution. I've, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed getting into the detail of this topic, and I think quite a few of the show's listeners uh, will love to hear about the, the nitty-gritty about some of these experiences today. But uh, before we get into it, I think the obvious question to ask is, how did you find yourself specialising not only in the French Revolution, but the experience of foreign soldiers in particular. Yeah, well, well, first of all, thanks, Will, for having me on. I'm excited to you know, talk about this topic. And yeah, to answer your question, I mean, <laughs> I don't know that I can provide a conclusive answer, right? Some of it is fate. Um, you know, why study France? Why study the revolution? I don't know. I'm not French by heritage. <laughs> I'm obviously living in the United States. Um, but it was just a topic that interested me. I can, I guess, be a little more specific about why I ended up doing this research when I was a grad student, and you know, then it later turned into uh, my first book as a professor. Um, and the answer there is that you know this seemed like a fruitful window to try to look at a topic that had been well researched, which is the history of nationality and citizenship in the era of revolutions. But this allowed me to take a very novel angle on it, right? In other words, a lot of scholars had written about you know the history of nationality laws in France, for example, or the history of national sentiment in France during the 18th century. But no one had really looked at this from the angle of the army. No one had looked at sort of the unique problems and contingencies that arose when the French were trying to define the national community um, cleanly. 
but at the same time, you know, rely on the military service of people who didn't really fit cleanly into the new categories of national belonging that they were trying to define. And so <laughs> that's essentially why I decided to go down this research path and why I thought it would, you know, be a good way to try to say something new about a topic like the French Revolution, which, of course, is not you know, exactly a, a new topic for most scholars. Yeah, I think it, I think personally, as someone who's, who's obviously read quite a bit on the French Revolution and, and, and the ideas around citizenship and nationalism that came from it, um, I personally found it quite a refreshing angle uh, and, and a way that you can kind of see theory turning out into practice, because at the end of the day, you know, you can count how many foreigners have a musket or, or a weapon in their hands. You can see how people have been treated. It was, a, it was a way to kind of tease out the difference between theory and, and necessity uh, and also see how those ideas changed over time because obviously, you know, the, the old regime was different from the initial revolutionary years, which was different from the terror, which was different from the Napoleonic era and then the restoration. So I, I personally found it a, a great way to... To, to, to kind of tackle or at least present a new angle on that front. Um, I suppose to, to maybe set the scene um, so that we can get into the discussion around the experience of foreign soldiers within the old regime initially. But most people today would associate soldiers as being citizens of the nations that they fight for. Or to put that in, a, in, a, in another way, a slightly more simplistic way, is that most people think that American soldiers are themselves American. Likewise, Chinese soldiers are Chinese, Australian soldiers are Australian, British soldiers are British, etc., etc. And, and I think that's understandable that most people automatically assume that as a general rule in the 21st century, a citizen and a soldier are generally the same things you know, for, for that country. And so with that in mind, I think it would potentially surprise a lot of the listeners of this interview that on the eve of the revolution, at the end of the old regime, a significant number of foreigners fought for the French army. I myself was certainly surprised to find out that of the Royal Army's 168 regular regiments, 32 of those were officially classified as foreign regiments. That's pretty much 20%. So I think just to start us off, the questions that have to be asked are, who were these soldiers that comprised what is a sizable component of the regular French army? You know, where did they come from and, and how did they find themselves in the employment of France? So, sure. <laughs> Good question. Uh, and this was all stuff that was new to me at one point, too. I mean, again, it's, it's, there's not been a lot of writing about this. There's been a bit, especially in French, but not so much in English. I guess the first thing I would say is that France was not at all unique. I mean, it, in, in the respect of having a large foreign contingent in its army, most major European states at the time did the same thing. I mean, the Spanish, um, the Austrians, uh, the Prussians to a lesser extent, you know, the Russians certainly were all doing this as well. Um, and they did it for different reasons. I mean, one was that there was this notion, which actually was false, but <laughs> people didn't know it at the time, that the population of France was in serious decline, right? I mean, there wasn't good demography at the time. And they actually seriously thought in the 18th century that France's population was plummeting. Um, we know now that it wasn't because historians can look back and figure out <laughs> that it wasn't. Um, but, you know, because of that concern, they thought it would be good to try to, you know, enlist foreigners in the army so that you weren't depriving France of manpower that they thought was already in short supply, you know, among civilians who were supposed to do work, etc. Um, so that's one reason. I mean, there's diplomatic prestige was sort of another reason the French monarchy used these foreign regiments to try to 
reinforce in certain cases ties with foreign states. And then in some cases, there is the idea too that French soldiers, or, or I shouldn't say French soldiers, French civilians were just not as good at fighting as certain other ethnic groups in, in Europe, or at least national groups. It, it's hard to use the term national in this context because people wouldn't have used it at the time. But right, in other words, uh, you know, Germans had a certain reputation as being more warrior-like, I suppose you could say. So did the Swiss, um, then did the French. And so that was a factor too. And so in terms of the the kind of ethnic groups that actually comprised these foreign regiments, so Swiss and Germans were among them, uh, were, were those the two dominant ethnic groups that made up these foreign regiments or were there, were there others as well? So they were the largest, uh, the Swiss and the Germans, but there were a variety of other <laughs> um, groups. I mean, nominally, there were about five groups. I mean, this varied a little bit over the course of the 17th and 18th centuries. But nominally, there were there were five real national groups associated with the foreign regiments. There were the Swiss, the Germans, the Irish, um, the Italians, and soldiers from the lowlands, um, or rather the low countries, um, meaning, um, you know, like uh, what is today the Netherlands um, and Belgium. But in practice, the foreign regiments actually recruited much more widely. So, you know, I found in my research soldiers from places as far away as Russia or, um, you know, certain parts of Spain. The Spanish were actually surprisingly rare um, within these foreign regiments. Um, Certainly large numbers of English uh, subjects, um, you know, who at the time would have been treated as distinct from from the Irish, even though Ireland and England were under control, you know, under control of the same government. Um, there are some Americans or people from the United States who come over as well. So, you know, there's really a, a wide diversity of ethnicities um, or other other sorts of proto-national groups represented. And I want to get into some of the, the practical challenges that that uh, wide kind of multi-ethnic uh, regiments would create. But before we do so, I just wanted to touch on the, the attitude of the governments whose citizens, and I, I use that term very loosely because, of course, that, that term is, you know, it was, it wasn't necessarily used at the time, yeah. <laughs> but, but the, the, the attitude of the national governments who, who, whose people actually participated in these foreign regiments, and, and was there a difference between them? So, so by that, I mean, you know, did the Swiss cantons have a very different view to the British government about the Swiss and the Irish regiments, respectively? Yeah, I mean, it varied, you know, the, it sort of depended on what the the stance of the government was toward France. Um, but I, I'll, I mean, I'll say, at, you know, at a high level, most monarchs in old regime Europe didn't really care if their subjects served in foreign armies. Um, and in some cases, they encouraged it, um, as long as they didn't serve in armies that were fighting against them, or that could potentially fight against them. You know, in the case of the British crown, the British crown wasn't excited about having Irish subjects go to France. Um, because they knew that, you know, potentially those Irish regiments would be used to fight against British armies um, in the event that France and Britain went to war. Although that said, the British also, I mean, it's a complicated situation there because they they were happy about the fact that, you know, men of military age were going to France rather than remaining in Ireland where they could potentially revolt. So it, it's sort of complicated there. There's actually evidence that, you know, officially the British banned Irish emigration to France because they didn't want Irish men to go serve in the French army. But secretly, <laughs> they actually actively encouraged it. They had, you know, kind of secret deals going on with the French to ship these men into France. Um, so that's a complicated situation. In other cases, though, I mean, in, in general, again, uh, governments didn't care. The Swiss cantons act- actively encouraged it. 
um, as a way to sort of, um, I mean, their, their primary motive was to generate money, basically make money by, by sending Swiss men to go fight in France. And then those men would, you know, send money back home. Um, Switzerland at the time, of course, was a place, you know, without a lot of farmland and it sort of before the industrial age, it wasn't exactly a place that had a lot of opportunity or not a lot of economic opportunity. So essentially selling its young men to go fight abroad, um, was, was seen as a great opportunity. A lot of German, you know, small German states did the same thing where they actively um, encouraged their subjects to go fight in foreign armies, including the French army, or in some cases even essentially rented them to the French crown where, you know, they would they would recruit them themselves and then they would rent the entire regiment <laughs> to the French crown, for lack of a better word. Essentially, that's, that's what the arrangement was. It was a, a rental by the French government. Um, of these men. And the German princes also did that to make money. Uh, and in some cases, too, they were basically trying to gain themselves some kind of a, a role to play on the international stage at a time when, you know, as you as you may know, you know, Germany at the time was a collection of hundreds of tiny little principalities. And a lot of these princes, you know, <laughs> couldn't really do much on the international stage, but by, you know, lending their soldiers to France or to Britain or to whichever power they decided to support, they could at least play some kind of a role in international affairs. So, yeah, I mean, you have a lot of different considerations going on. But in general, you know, not only was there not a lot of discouragement from governments of having their soldiers serve, in, you know, for other countries, but uh, they actually encouraged it for a variety of different reasons in many cases. Yeah, you can you can see if you're if you're a small petty prince in in the Holy Roman Empire, you can see that lending your troops out to to France, or I believe they did the same um, with Britain as well. I think even that tied into the American Revolutionary Wars to an extent. Yep. You can see that that not only does it help derive income for you, but it also helps you maintain a much larger force than potentially you could as a general rule. And therefore, when you want the, those troops back, you've got you've got a large pool of manpower that you can you can call upon as well. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah, gaining military experience. Yeah, they want soldiers who know how to fight in case they need to fight for, you know, their own government. And so, you know, we've got we've got Swiss, we've got Germans, we've got a range of ethnicities uh that were that were fighting for the French crown. At this point in time or at least, you know, prior to the revolution or just before, the old regime is generally associated and it's always in fact it's always associated with the preeminence of the Catholic Church. And it wasn't until 1787 that many Protestants, for example, were granted more fuller recognition in the legal form. Um, I presume that a lot of these foreign soldiers, whether they come from Germany or modern-day Switzerland or or wherever in in some of these non-Catholic territories or territories that weren't always entirely Catholic, did the old regime allow foreigners who weren't followers of the the Roman Catholic Church? And, And if so, how did their faith impact their career as a soldier for the French army? So, yeah, I mean, these guys were absolutely allowed to serve in France. Um, You know, it's one of the many contradictions of old regime France is that nominally the state was completely committed to the Catholic Church and the king was supposed to be the defender of Catholicism. Nonetheless, (laughs) um, you know, the, the French administration had no qualms whatsoever about allowing Protestants to serve in its army. Um, some of the, the highest ranking generals, in the later 18th century, men like Georg von Luckner, who was um, from Bavaria, were actually Protestant. So, yeah, and in general, it didn't really affect the careers of these men, you know, in any way in France. Uh, there weren't really any distinctions imposed by the monarchy. Uh, I guess the, the one exception is that 
in order to qualify for the Croix de Saint-Louis, which was a basically a, a military medal awarded to soldiers um, generally based on their length of service in France, you had to be Catholic. So <laughs> you could be foreign, but you had to be Catholic to, you know, to qualify for that award. So Protestants weren't eligible for that. Although even there, the monarchy, I think in the 1750s, it might have been 1740s. I don't remember exactly when they created a sort of equivalent award for Protestants. So, you know, of course, that's all symbolic anyway. It's just an award. But in terms of, you know, pay, in terms of service conditions, in terms of, you know, who would be most likely to send, you know, who would be most likely to be sent to the, the frontier to fight, you know, there, there was no real distinction between Protestants or Catholics. And you mentioned earlier that these foreign regiments that were created they could often be composed of multiple different ethnicities within the one regiment. So is it fair to say that the Irish regiment wasn't always comprised of Irishmen or Englishmen entirely and that a German regiment wasn't always comprised of Germans? Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's very fair to say. Early on, when, when most of these regiments originated, they were, for the most part, you know, probably like 90% in most cases, they were composed of the ethnicities with which they were nominally associated. So the Irish regiments were 90% Irish, and maybe you would have, you know, 10% other soldiers from from random origins. But you're talking, you know, that, that was true in like the 1690s. By the time you got into the second half of the 18th century, a lot of these regiments, in fact, were really foreign in name only. In general, it really varied from regiment to regiment. But in general, you might have only about 50% of the soldiers in a given foreign regiment were actually of foreign origin. The rest were French subjects, you know, native-born Frenchmen. Um, and even among the, the foreign contingent, you know, within an Irish regiment by the 1750s, um, the foreigners were coming from all, all over the place. You would have had Italians, you know, English, Germans, again, some people from well, well, the British colonies, what was not yet the United States, but would be the United States, um, all of these men would have been serving in, in you know, a so-called Irish regiment, for example. The Swiss regiments were, were an exception. They remained mostly Swiss up until the revolution, you know, not purely Swiss. There were still some Germans, especially who got in. But for the most part, they were relatively pure <laughs> from a national origin perspective. But yeah, a lot of the other regiments, you know, were, were much less so. And in your book, you, you were talking about some of the, let's call it practical challenges that these, the multi-ethnic composition of these regiments could create. And as someone who uh, speaks a little bit of German and has tried to learn some Spanish, you know, I, I had this huge smile on my face when I stumbled upon uh, this particular quote, which I'm just going to read to kind of preface this question a little bit. And it's about the the difficulty of kind of translating orders when when languages across Europe don't necessarily kind of harmoniously synchronize. So the quote is, the word your appears to be employed indifferently in place of li, la, voster, and vos, and is used to translate both li and la. The German article d perplexed another French officer because it appeared in the German translation before both singular and plural nouns a fact that seemed suspect to him because of the notion that all noun markers should be unambiguous with regard to number, as they are in French. In other words, you've, you've got you know, the English language, the German language, the French language, all with different ways of saying very simple words like your and the, creating absolute chaos when you come in to translate these orders. So, so in terms of some of the practical challenges which confronted these non-homogenous forces, how were things like language barriers and other sorts of customs addressed to actually create 
a cohesive fighting force. So, <laughs> yeah, that's one of my, you know, one of the more interesting tidbits I stumbled upon in my research is that report about French officers trying to to criticize and, you know, evaluate the accuracy of uh, translations of, of French military commands into other languages. And clearly these guys didn't know the other languages and, in fact, didn't even really understand how language worked. But, of course, you can't blame them because it's the 18th century. Um, you know, they almost certainly didn't have formal educations. Um, but, you know, to answer your question, there were basically a variety of different strategies some regiments, um, you know, for dealing with the, the, the differences of language, some regiments employed um, interpreters, like they had special special positions for officers or, or sub-officers who, who were responsible for translating between French and whatever the language of the regiment was. The French government also published in, in the, the, you know, the, the passages you cite were, were from this initiative um, which was an effort by the French government to publish official translations of French military commands um, into languages like English and German so that they could be used by the Swiss and German and, and Irish regiments. So there were those efforts, although, of course, you know, they were certainly of limited efficacy because, well, for different reasons. I mean, one is the fact that, you know, it's likely that not all the Irish soldiers actually spoke English, right? I mean, they may have been speaking Gaelic. We don't really know because there's not a lot of information available from sort of ordinary soldiers in those regiments, but that's a reasonable assumption. Uh, you know, you also have the fact that there's a, as, as we just spoke about a few moments ago, there's a real diversity of, of national groups within many of these regiments. So even if you give the Irish regiments, you know, a command book translated into English, it's not going to help the soldiers who are from Belgium, for example, and have no idea how to speak English, <laughs> um, you know, they'd probably be better off with French if they're from um, a French speaking part of Belgium. So, you know, the answer is they made efforts to address these, um, these, these problems, but I, I think they were probably better than nothing, but uh, I don't think they ever fully solved these issues. And I imagine the, the translated command book, you know, when you're under cannon fire and you've dropped it in the mud, it's, uh, you know, it is of, of limited use to you as well and when, you're, when you're actually under the pressure of, of war. Um, I would think. <laughs> <laughs> so so these, these soldiers, uh, is it fair to say that they, you know, like, like if, if we think about how we should conceptualise them, were they just mercenaries in the modern sense of the word, or or is that an unfair characteristic for these soldiers and and how they thought of themselves and how they fought on behalf of France? So I argue in the book, <laughs> and I, I would still argue that you know that's that's an unfair characterization. Um, at least you know if you define mercenary in the way we do today, which is to say, you know, I think in general when people say mercenary today, they're thinking of soldiers who basically have no attachment to any specific you know, national cause or government. And, you know, they're basically going to fight for whoever will pay them the most. And that's a problematic label to apply to foreign soldiers under the old regime um, for, you know, I think for a couple of reasons. One is that under in, in old regime France, you know, in an age before modern notions of nationality existed or before modern notions of patriotic duty existed, all soldiers <laughs> were essentially fighting for a paycheck or the early modern equivalent of a paycheck, which was really just room and board for a lot of these guys, you know, which is to say, in other words, that it's not as if French nationals who fought in the French army did so out of a sense of patriotic duty. Most of them were just doing it because it was a profession. So in that sense, you know, I don't think they're that different than mercenaries today. We live in an age today when at least nominally, and I think, it, you know, in genuine point of fact, for a lot of people who serve in the army, 
you know, military service is attached, at least in part, to a sense of patriotic duty. But that really didn't exist, or at least there's not a lot of evidence that that was a strong motivator for most soldiers, regardless of their national origin um, in France during the 18th century. The second reason I wouldn't call these soldiers mercenaries is that a lot of them had, you know, much deeper attachments to France than the term mercenary sort of suggests. You know, these were guys who didn't just show up and, and serve for a year and then go off to whichever country they came from. Um, these were men who, in a lot of cases, spent decades in the French army. You know, they married French women or brought, you know, if they were already married before they enlisted, they brought their families with them. Um, in a lot of cases, they settled permanently in France. So, I mean, there's really a much, much deeper attachment here. It's not as if these soldiers simply showed up <laughs> and served for the French government as long as it was willing to pay them and then, you know, went their own way when they no longer needed the, the government's cash. So would it be fair to say then on that on that latter point that despite the fact that they were officially a officially fought for a foreign regiment that the soldiers didn't really see themselves as foreign or that their service had kind of redefined their sense of identity and facilitated a, an attachment to their adopted nation if you will. Yep, yeah, and many of them, you know, made that argument <laughs> that they had become French. And I guess it's important to note that in many of the sources I found, right, where, where they make this argument, where they say, you know, we're basically French from our service, from our military service, therefore you should treat us like French natives. A lot of those arguments were made in the, in the context of, you know, these soldiers trying to, to plead for favorable treatment by the French government during the revolution. Or in cases where they made this argument under the old regime, they were doing so when they were trying to ask for like pensions um, you know, or, or special, you know, other sorts of special treatment by the French crown. So <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, th- these weren't necessarily like purely objective um, statements of sentiment, you know, there was an agenda behind them. But that said, I don't think it was all invented. I think that in a lot of cases, these soldiers did really feel an attachment to France. If they didn't, you know, they probably wouldn't have stayed there after they had retired, they would have gone back to their own countries. A lot of these soldiers did eventually learn to speak French as well. A lot of them, at least officers, would end up owning property in France, and you'd have you know multiple generations of officers serving the French crown. So I think that you know if these soldiers were simply claiming to be attached to France because it it was a way to try to get you know a better pension or something like that, I I don't think they would have um, been behaving in the ways that they did. One of those uh, convenient truths where you uh, you can make the argument on why you should get a pension, but also you do genuinely want to stay in the country as well. Yep. <laughs> yeah. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history.
and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. So so I want to transition, and we've been talking a lot about foreigners in the army in the old regime, and I want to transition now towards the revolution. And so I suppose the initial starting point to discuss is is that transition itself. And so what, what role did foreign regiments play in the initial months of the revolution, and did they play a prominent role in the key events of June and July 1789? Uh, so yes, <laughs> the answer is yes, they did. You know, from some of the sort of earliest outbreaks associated with the revolution in the spring of 1789, which was before, you know, the revolution was properly underway, before anyone was really talking about there being a revolution, um, which wasn't really until the late summer of 1789, because, I mean, this is a whole side story, but, you know, there's literature showing that people, even when the Bastille was stormed, nobody said, we're doing this to start a revolution. It wasn't until a couple of months later that that event had really sort of been conceptualized as as one key event in what was becoming a revolution. But anyway, you know, the foreign troops were involved in early disturbances like a riot in Grenoble, which was sort of one of the early acts of revolutionary violence and was, you know, there was a Swiss regiment sent to respond and try to put down the riot, which it did. Um, more significantly, though, in Paris during the summer of 1789, both before and after the Bastille was stormed, there were a number of foreign regiments. In fact, a majority of troops called by the French king into Paris in anticipation of having to you know, respond to seditious activity among the people of Paris were foreign. So you know, there's evidence that the French king, or at least military, um, the military administration assumed that foreigners would be more reliable and more willing to fight against you know, Parisians than would um, you know, French regiments. Um, and so they they were just more present. About half of the, the regiments, I believe half, it's probably in my book, forget the exact number, but off the top of my head, I'm going to say about half of the regiments in Paris in 1789 were foreign, although you know they, they represented overall only about 20% of the army. And they were prominently involved in events like um, the, the riot in the Tuileries on the, or the Tuileries Garden on the day before the storming of the Bastille, which was um, another anti-government act that was put down by a German regiment. And then even during the storming of the Bastille, there were Swiss soldiers defending the Bastille. They had been sent there a few days prior to the attack on the Bastille to reinforce it. And in fact, they were the only sort of able-bodied men <laughs> defending the Bastille, because as you may know, the Bastille before it was was attacked was basically a, um, I mean, it was basically used as sort of an arsenal. It wasn't it was militarily obsolete because it had been built in the Middle Ages and it was staffed by old or handicapped soldiers um, who were sort of sent there because it was, you know, <laughs> it was easy duty. But when the, the the military governor of Paris thought that the people of Paris were going to attack the Bastille, he sent some Swiss soldiers um, who were detached from one of the Swiss regiments to go and defend the Bastille. So foreigners were present there as well. Um, and, you know, even later on during the women's march to Bast- or the women's march to Versailles, you had foreign soldiers involved there as well. And eventually during the, the King's flight to Varennes, um, foreign regiments were deployed to try to defend that. Although now we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's much, much later than, you know, the initial revolution. 
Yeah, we did actually hear, um, I remember in the episode about the Storming of the Bastille, we did actually hear from, um, I think it was a lieutenant in the Swiss detachment, and he was criticizing the governor of the Bastille as someone who was, you know, scared of shadows and would freak out when the wind blew the trees, so to speak. <laughs> yep. So really we have actually heard... Yeah, so we have, we we have heard uh, from the Swiss in in our actual in the in the main show. How did these roles impact the perception of foreign troops, and, and did this establish a common association uh, between either the deputies or the people um, that that foreign units uh, were generally linked to the court or to the counter revolution? Did this create a a rather negative PR branding issue, if you like? Yeah, I mean, understandably, <laughs> it did. I, I, you know, I sort of argue in the book, and I, I suspect it's really hard to prove this because there's not a lot of evidence to show what the average person in France thought about foreign regiments in 1789. But I suspect that there was sort of a more latent suspicion of foreigners and foreign regiments. <laughs> I, you know, that that sort of informed revolutionary thinking even before the events of the summer of 1789 involving foreigners. But certainly, you know, the fact that the king had relied on foreign regiments. Um, to defend his interests early in the revolution, set the stage for deputies in the National Assembly to later accuse foreign regiments of sedition and, you know, argue that they couldn't be trusted. Um, So, I mean, in a way, it's a chicken and the egg problem, right? It's, you know, did the king depend on the foreign regiments because, um, you know, he actually trusted them more and then the revolutionaries later suspected the regiments because of that or did would the revolutionaries have suspected the regiments anyway and that's why the king you know called them i don't know <laughs> i don't know that's not exactly a chicken and the egg problem but it's something like that that's what you face as an historian trying to figure out you know how opinion is formed and and i noticed that you know this perception that was quite hostile to foreign troops you know came from a variety of individuals across the political spectrum i know that mirabeau on the 8th of july stated that he knew french troops would never attack french patriots but he but he didn't express the same view towards foreign troops and, and later brousseau and marat um who you know the those three individuals are, are, are by not any means you know at the same points of a political compass they all opposed foreign troops so i suppose my question is was this perception that that came to exist was it fair like did did all foreign troops just blindly follow the orders of the monarchy or did you did you find cases of insubordination or desertion which which makes this uh, a more complex or nuanced topic so it's certainly more complex um you know in certain cases foreign regiments did follow the orders of the monarchy you know most notably during that that riot in the tuileries on July 13th, 1789, when we, by all indications, you know, there was a German regiment, it was actually a cavalry regiment um, that did attack civilians. And I believe two French civilians were killed. Um, but in other cases, you know, I mean, one of the arguments, if you're trying to figure out why the French monarchy actually failed to put down the revolution early on, one argument you can make is that the foreign regiments overall that were in Paris in 1789 were just not that reliable. Um, they either, you know, actively disobeyed orders to march against foreign civilian or rather French civilians, or, you know, they, they just, you know, sort of took their time, you know, putting on their boots and their uniforms. And as a result, they failed to defend, um, you know, key buildings within the city. This is why the revolutionaries managed to take over the city hall, for example. Um, there was, uh, I forget if it was an Irish, I think it was actually a German regiment that was supposed to get there and defend the building, but it didn't show up in time. So the building ended up in the hands of revolutionaries. Um, and then, you know, there are also some statements made by foreign troops who 
Um, one, I, forget, I think it was a pamphlet I found, or maybe it was a report from officers, you know, reporting what their soldiers were saying. Um, I forget the exact nature of the source, but, you know, these soldiers were saying that if they were asked to fire against French civilians, they would deliberately sabotage their own weapons so that they couldn't do that. Um, you know, there was a pamphlet, an anonymous pamphlet published in the name of foreign troops in Paris in 1789, expressing solidarity with the French revolutionaries. So, the, you know, there's not a lot of evidence that these soldiers, for the most part, were actually counter-revolutionary. Certainly some of them were. And in general, the officers tended to be more conservative. You know, even foreign officers, as you might imagine, identified more with the French aristocracy and the French monarchy than did common soldiers. So, you know, it goes both ways. But in general, you know, I think the attitude um, adopted at the time across the political spectrum that foreign regiments were sort of uniformly pro-monarchy was just not accurate. Yeah, and I think uh, you pointed out in the book, and I hadn't thought of it in this way before, but uh, it was a very very good point that if foreign regiments were so reliable, then why in late September did you get the Flanders Regiment going to Versailles instead of a a foreign regiment, you know, it, it's it's interesting that you you get a you know a, a non officially designated foreign regiment to to come you know guard the palace, if you will. Um, if foreign regiments are supposedly the best and most disciplined troops that you got, yeah, exactly. And you know, I mean, the Flanders regiment, to be clear, despite its name, was actually a French regiment and and always had been. And yeah, and there were other foreign regiment or foreign troops involved in in efforts to um, prevent the women from marching on Versailles and. Uh, they, they didn't. I mean, the Flanders Regiment also failed. <laughs> they all failed. <laughs> the women got into Versailles, right? And the Queen, you know, famously escaped. I, I don't know. I should not I should know this, I guess, as an historian of the French Revolution. I don't know if it's an apocryphal story or not, but supposedly Marie Antoinette escaped through a secret passage or something. But, but yeah, so at, at the end of the day, I mean, maybe the King by that point didn't trust the foreign regiments anymore. Or I shouldn't even say the King because I doubt he was personally making these decisions, but you know, his administration didn't trust the foreign regiments because of their behavior in Paris in July and, you know, in June. Now, I suppose we've been talking about the, the this perception that foreign troops generally tended to be more pro-monarchy. Yet, even prior to these events in June and July, there were voices that were already starting to advocate for the disbandment of foreign regiments. I saw in, in your book that in April 1789, so before the Estates General had even sat, the Comte de Sanois stated, and I quote, I believe it is necessary to request the total dissolution of the foreign units so that we can place children of the country in the service of the country. And, and so I, I see that quote and I think to myself that clearly that there is hostile sentiment towards foreign regiments even prior to the full-scale revolution uh, in the summer of 1789 and the involvement of foreign troops with it. So so my questions are, was opposition to foreign regiments common prior to the revolution? And how long did it take until significant objections arose to foreigners participating in the armed forces? And, and did these objections originate from within the National Assembly itself? Or did the Assembly follow the lead of voices outside of it? So, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of two questions. I guess I'll answer the, the second one first. And the second question, I think, is, you know, did this sentiment, did this hostility toward foreign troops originate, you know, from among elite politicians within the National Assembly, or was it sort of latent within French society more broadly? I tend to believe that it was latent more broadly. That said, it, it, it's hard to prove this because there are a lot more sources available, right? I mean, the 
there are a lot more sources that speak to what deputies in the National Assembly were saying and thinking um, than there are sources that show you, you know, what your average, you know, <laughs> barrel maker, you know, in, in a random neighborhood of Paris was thinking about foreign regiments, for example, at the time. And that's just, you know, by nature, the fact that politicians were much likelier to publish political pamphlets. And then, of course, all the, the, the deliberations of the National Assembly are recorded. So we can look at that. But that said, there's still scattered evidence I point to in the book, um, things like the Cahier de Doléance, which expressed some hostility toward foreign troops. You can look at certain court cases, which involved foreign soldiers being um, you know, tried or at least accused of committing certain crimes. Um, and you know, one of the pecu- peculiarities of being a foreign soldier in France under the old regime was that you were not subject to French justice for the most part. It varied. There were certain regiments that were, but most of the regiments um, were basically immune from the French juridical system, which meant that if you were a foreign soldier who, you know, got drunk and, and got in a fight in the street with a Frenchman and you beat him up, the French courts couldn't try you or punish you. Instead, the officers of the regiment were supposed to punish you. So, you know, French people resented that. And this sort of speaks to, um, I think, you're, the first part of your question, which is what did people think of <laughs> foreign regiments or, you know, was there hostility toward them? And if so, why? And this was one reason. I mean, people were, people resented the fact that foreign troops had this sort of juridical immunity that French subjects didn't have. You know, there, I found some, some cases, you know, it's hard to really look at this systematically, but you can find court cases where foreign soldiers shoot French civilians, for example, and then nothing happens to them. And, you know, for obvious reasons, um, French civilians are not happy about that. So that that's one cause of resentment. People didn't like that the foreign soldiers were paid more. They were paid more than French soldiers. So, you know, that's a source of resentment, especially in a society where taxes are subject to constant contestation. And we're basically constantly going up. You know, there was a lot of criticism um, from folks who would have said, why don't we stop paying the foreign troops so much? And maybe we can stop inventing new taxes every other year. So, yeah, I think those were, you know, two of the common sources of resentment. And then, I mean, I sort of argue in the book, and again, this is really hard to prove because there's just not a lot of source material. And, and what there is is sort of stuff that, you know, is only anecdotal. It's hard to make a really systematic argument. But I do think that there was a sort of latent sense of, of national identity forming in France at the time. And that encouraged a sort of hostility toward foreigners, you know, simply because they were foreigners, not because of what they did, but because they were foreign. Yeah, so so on that topic, you know, we've we've discussed some specifics that might have helped to drive uh, the reform efforts that we see as early as 1789 to potentially abolish these foreign regiments. Things like the fact that these foreign units represented privileges and inequalities among you know that that were representative of the old regime that that the populace and the deputies might not have supported. Also, things like that they were paid more, etc. How did things like this kind of new nationalism and the new ideas regarding citizenship play into the debate? How did how did those kind of new, very revolutionary concepts or those concepts that were evolving at the time, how did that play into the ideas or the debates that the deputies were having about just what they should do regarding these regiments? Well, my overall, or overall argument, and, you know, this is why I think the book makes a, a novel contribution to thinking about the evolution of national thinking in France during the revolution is that basically from the very start, um, the conceptualization of national identity that the French revolutionaries cultivated was one that privileged people who looked French and spoke French and were born in France. And that there was sort of an implicit exclusion of outsiders from the very beginning. 
And that, of course, is interesting because what the French revolutionaries said, at least early in the revolution, was that, you know, everybody was welcome to come participate in the revolution and they wanted to free all peoples. And you even have some of these people referring to themselves as citizens of the world. So, you know, on the surface, there's all this rhetoric about being open to all peoples. But I think that below the surface, if you look at um, how the foreign regiments in particular were being treated, regardless of what they actually did, they were being treated in a way that sort of gradually but systematically um, led to their you know, expulsion from the army on the basis of the fact that they were not French. Um, no matter how much they claimed to be French, no matter what they did to, to demonstrate their commitment to France, they were still treated as outsiders and consequently were eventually excluded from the army altogether. Yeah, so, so I want to come back to that point, but I think maybe just to, to help set the scene a little bit, perhaps we should just jump into some of the reforms that we see um, the Assembly introduce regarding foreign soldiers and then, and then tie back into that point. So are we able, I suppose my first key question is, is what were some of the significant reforms that the Assembly introduced throughout 1790 and 1791 uh, that eventually saw the, the nationalisation of, of these foreign regiments? Uh, so, I mean, you know, as I said, it's sort of a gradual but systematic process that culminated in the dissolution of the foreign regiments. Um, you know, I mean, they they first took steps to limit the number of foreigners who could serve in the French army overall. And that was part of, you know, broader projects involving the reformation of the army early in the revolution. They later, you know, they 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 stripped the foreign units of their special uniforms at one point. Um, you know, so they no longer got to wear uniforms that marked them as being different than than foreign or than you know the rest of the French army. And then eventually, um, the government in 1791 decreed that most foreign regiments would simply be nationalized, which meant, I mean, which is a term they actually used at the time, um, which meant that they would be transformed into French regiments. The foreign soldiers in them were allowed to stay, but from that point forth. They were no longer allowed to recruit new foreigners, at least in theory. And yeah, so that's how they were treated. The Swiss regiments were an exception. <laughs> they persisted until August of 1792. And so to go back to what you were talking about earlier around a, a disconnect between the way that foreign soldiers were treated and the, the kind of cosmopolitan inclusive values that the revolutionaries officially uh, proclaimed, I just want to talk about that that kind of xenophobia there because eventually once we get into the terror and that's not a that's not a point that we are at in the in the main show at the moment we've only just hit the war with Austria in in 1792 mm-hmm. but eventually when when we get into the terror there is a lot of hostility toward towards foreign civilians and many historians present this xenophobia as a direct result of the terror and the extreme military circumstances which helped to create that environment. But you, however, both in your book and, and what you've been discussing today, argue that from the from the earliest moments of the revolution, both French politicians and citizens marginalized foreign troops regardless of their political beliefs. And, and furthermore, you state in the book that this hostility towards foreigners in the army, uh, which preempts the eventual hostility towards all foreigners, uh, this hostility towards foreigners in the army displays the kernel of nationalist xenophobia, which was present within French revolutionary thinking from the very beginning of the revolution. And, and that's in spite of the cosmopolitan rhetoric embraced by the revolutionaries. 
Can you elaborate on what you mean by this and where you agree and disagree with the opinion of other historians who generally present this xenophobia as developing later in the revolutionary timeline? So, yeah. <laughs> and again, I mean, that's sort of the, the core argument of the book or the, the reason why, you know, the book matters you know, to people who are not necessarily just interested in the revolution or the French army. Um, so, you know, generally, most historians who have studied the treatment of foreigners in the French Revolution, you know, by, and I mean foreigners in general, not the foreign regiment specifically, have basically, you know, followed the narrative or, or written narratives that show that foreigners in general, um, you know, those in the army were an exception, but foreigners in general were welcomed into France until basically late 1793, which was the low point of both the terror and also the low point in the Revolutionary War. That's when France was losing badly. And there was, um, you know, there was a real existential crisis for the revolutionary regime and a real concern that foreign powers were going to march into Paris and put the king back on the throne and probably do a lot of nasty things to the revolutionaries. Because, of course, they had said <laughs> they had promised to um, you know, destroy Paris to the point that uh, in the future, no one would even be able to figure out where it had stood. It was at that point that rhetoric toward foreigners in general shifted and that suddenly the revolutionaries began expelling them. You know, they began expelling um, foreign deputies from the National Convention, people like Anasharsis Klutz, who was a, a Prussian. Um, Thomas Paine, I believe, was also expelled at that time. He was, of course, a a British American um, who had gone to France and sympathized with the French cause. But the interesting thing about the foreign regiments is that these things have been happening to foreign soldiers long before they started happening to foreigners in general. And that's why I argue that, you know, despite the sort of cosmopolitan rhetoric that flourished on the surface toward foreigners early in the revolution, it's hard to reconcile that rhetoric with what was happening to foreign soldiers, because if the revolutionaries really wanted the revolution to be international and they really wanted to embrace foreign peoples as much as they claimed, it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to have treated foreign soldiers in particular um, in the ways that they did. And so this is why I think that the treatment of foreign soldiers sort of belies a, a more latent xenophobia that lurked beneath the surface um, and that, you know, didn't really rise to the surface regarding non-citizen or non-military non foreigners until uh, a bit later in the terror, but was nonetheless there from the very beginning. Were there any counter arguments that were occurring at this time uh, in favor of the use of foreign troops? Was there a sizable faction that were advocating for the use of foreign soldiers? And if so, on what grounds? So, sure. I mean, uh, there were a lot of people in the military administration wanted to preserve the foreign regiments, um, mostly because they saw them as an important military asset. You know, again, they, there was this idea that Swiss soldiers and German soldiers and even Irish soldiers were better soldiers than, than the French. Um, there was also a real concern because a lot of the foreign soldiers, again, had been men who had been serving in the army for decades. They had, they were really militarily experienced. And that was important at the time because, you know, during the revolution, your typical French soldier, um, was someone who was just conscripted and who might have been full of national fervor, <laughs> but had very little or no military experience. So the, the foreign soldiers in that sense were sort of an important asset for the army. So were the foreign officers, because a lot of French officers who were almost exclusively aristocrats, in fact, you know, with a, a few loopholes, the, the French monarchy had um, passed decrees requiring officers in the French army to be aristocrats. A lot of those guys left early in the revolution because they weren't happy about the revolution. 
And that meant that, you know, a lot of the foreign officers who stayed behind were an important source of military leadership. Um, and French generals recognized this, you know, so did foreign generals who were serving France. Um, but there was, there was a, a strong push from the military administration to preserve the foreign regiments. And that was really the, the main impetus. I mean, beyond that, you know, there was a, a push by diplomats as well, because they were worried about what would happen, you know, with, for example, relations with the Swiss cantons. Although at the end of the day, none of this mattered because the deputies sort of went ahead with abolishing these regiments, despite the military and diplomatic fallout um, that uh, they, or that the abolition promised to um, cause. I'm going to change tack a little bit now, just because I'm conscious of time. And, and what I really want to discuss is, is just briefly discuss the role of American volunteers as well as black and Jewish soldiers before we, we wrap up. So if I start with... Uh, your own home country, if I start with American volunteers, what role did Americans play in the French Revolutionary Wars? Uh, did any significant numbers participate in the European theatre of conflict? And what about in the in the wider kind of Americas and, and Caribbean theatre? So, I mean, if you're thinking of citizens of the United States specifically, there were certainly some. <laughs> um, probably not many. You're probably talking about, I mean, I know of I guess three or four, depending on how you're counting their participation officers. Um, and there were probably, you know, a certain number of ordinary soldiers from the United States who served in the French armies during the French revolution. Um, so they were there um, numerically, they weren't hugely important, but of course, symbolically, you know, you could, you, we could talk for a long time about, you know, connections between American and French Republicanism. Um, but again, you have this guy, Jean, Jean Eustace, who served at Valmy um, and later went on to fight in, uh, you know, with French armies to command French troops um, fighting in the low countries. He actually started naming streets after people like George Washington and some of the towns that he uh, conquered, which I thought was you know funny. <laughs> there was also an effort back in the United States. You know, if you want to really talk about how Americans were involved in the French Revolutionary War, you've got to look at what was happening on the frontier of the United States where there was a scheme. And, you know, this is relatively well known. It's called the, the Genet Affair. Um, there was a scheme that was sort of overseen by Genet, who was the ambassador of, of France to the United States, who arrived and um, convinced some Americans, specifically some guys living in sort of the, the, the frontier uh, along the Carolinas, um, to enlist in the French army. So nominally, nominally, these guys were enlisted in the French army, even though you know most of these, you know, by all indications, they had no idea how to speak French. Um, they'd never been to France. Um, but theoretically, they were in the French army and they were supposed to raise troops and go and invade Louisiana, which at that time was, you know, of course, it had been a French colony in the past. But at that time, it was controlled by Spain, which was at war with revolutionary France. And there was an effort, you know, well, they, they actually raised the records show that they actually raised or at least they claim to have raised about 2000 American citizens to go fight in this expedition against Spanish Louisiana um, until it was shut down. Later in the revolution, there was a sort of similar scheme um, involving an effort to recruit soldiers in Vermont to go and invade Canada, which was controlled by the British. Um, that fell apart when, when the ship that was supposed to bring guns to these soldiers didn't make it because the British intercepted it shortly after it left um, Europe. But yeah, so if you look at North America, there's there's a lot of American involvement. We can talk too. I'll, I'll come back to you now because I don't know how long you want me to talk about this. But, you know, there are a lot of black soldiers too who fought in the Caribbean who are not American citizens, but were still called Americans at the time. But 
Uh, let me turn it back to you, Will, and, and see what, where you want to go next. Yeah, so, so, so on the topic of, of black soldiers, black soldiers who were born on French territory, either in France or in French colonies, you know, they obviously weren't foreign in the same sense. I suppose my initial questions are, what role did black soldiers play during the Revolutionary Wars? Uh, when were the first regiments created? And uh, was this being driven out of France or, or, as I suspect, out of the colonies? So, yeah, I mean, good questions. Uh, you know, I mean, under the old regime, there had been black military units, both in the colonies and in at least one case in France itself. Um, so it wasn't a, a new idea at all for the French to raise black military units. But they did that again, you know, predictably <laughs> um, early in the revolution. Or I shouldn't say early in 1792. Um, they raised a new military unit called the Legion of the Americans, which uh, you know, the, despite its name, it, it didn't recruit citizens of the United States. It recruited so-called Americans, by which the French at the time meant residents of France's colonies in the Americas, which were the, the Caribbean at that time. They no longer controlled Canada. So when they said Americans, they were thinking mostly about people from the Caribbean who were mostly black, right? They were descendants of slaves who had been brought to the French Caribbean um, and had been freed um, that unit, is, the Legion of the Americans, is, is interesting because it actually went to went on to serve in France. So there were certainly black troops in Europe itself um, during the Revolution, and this continued, you know, all the way through one, until Napoleon's time. We can talk about them. We can also talk about the much larger numbers of black troops who fought in the Caribbean in France's colonies, where, of course, you know, there was sort of a I don't, I mean, you could think of it as part of the same war, or you could think of it as a separate but related war, the war in, you know, present day Haiti, where there had been a massive slave revolt starting in 1791. And that was followed by interventions by foreign powers, by the British and the Spanish. And it really became a very messy situation. Um, the French employed black troops there, mostly out of political, or mostly as an expediency. You know, they, the situation was was really out of control. And the French basically said at one point in, in 1793, you know, every black who enlists in the French army and fights with us will be emancipated regardless, you know, regardless of what your status was before the revolution, um, regardless of whether you were free or not, you'll be emancipated. We'll take care of you, which was interesting because at the time they hadn't yet actually abolished slavery. That didn't happen until February of 1794 officially. Um, but it's sort of out of desperation, you know, the French needed manpower. They needed all the manpower they could get in the colonies. And so they, they started enlisting French or enlisting black troops in very large numbers, really without regard to where they had come from or, you know, <laughs> whether they were, you know, of French colonial origin or British colonial origin or anything else. It didn't really matter. I suppose when you're facing, you know, opponents or a wide variety of opponents, armed opponents, you know, you had rebel slaves reactionary white planters, um, foreign armies. I've, I've read in another source that actually some of the white plantation owners would collaborate with British and Spanish troops and actually assist them to invade uh, French colonies, you know, to, to, to help, you know, assert their traditional um, position within those colonial societies. I suppose it's, uh, you know, desperate times calls for desperate measures. Mm -hmm. you, 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 you mentioned um, the abolition or the, emancipa the emancipation in February 1794. How, did that change the, the dynamic at all that France had between black soldiers? Because at, at that point in time, you would end up with you know, the British and the Spanish hadn't abolished slavery at that point in time. So did that, did that create a, an incentive for, for black troops to fight on behalf of the tricolor? 
I mean, certainly for some of them. I mean, Toussaint Louverture, for example, had fought for uh, France's enemies. You know, Toussaint Louverture being, of course, the, the famous general during the Haitian Revolution. He fought against the French um, under, I believe, the British flag, but it might have been the, the Spanish. I forget. Until the abolition of slavery, which caused him to come over to the French side, and he actually helped expel the British and, and Spanish from what would later be Haiti. And then later on, he went and fought against the French again for Haitian independence. So he's a he's a complicated guy in terms of you know who he's actually fighting for. But the abolition of slavery, you know, did that that was the the, the event that caused him to switch um, to fighting for the French Republic. In general, you know, it, it's a complicated question. I mean, and. I think we'd really have to have a long discussion about, you know, the sort of complexities of of race and and thinking about the status of people of color in France and the French Empire in the 18th century. You know, I mean, in in Saint-Domingue, the French colony that became Haiti, there was there's there's a lot of evidence that, you know, free people of color, you know, stood apart from enslaved blacks and didn't necessarily um, ally themselves with them. You know, they saw themselves as having different interests from them. People of mixed race, too, saw themselves as a sort of different group with different interests. Um, I think what the abolition of slavery did was it made all of these people equally willing to fight in the French army. Because previously, right, if you were a free black, you know, I mean, to to an extent that I think would surprise a lot of people today, you didn't necessarily um, want the French to abolish slavery because free blacks sort of had some privileges in Saint-Domingue that um, enslaved blacks didn't. So, so yeah, I mean, it also mattered for the ways that French politicians could talk about black troops, right? I mean, at first, the, the, the rhetoric was very circumspect because they realized that it was problematic that, you know, slavery was still very much legal in the French Empire, even at a time when they were, you know, calling on blacks to fight to defend the Republic. You know, once they abolished slavery, it became easier to sort of celebrate the service of black troops openly and to just avoid all of the you know, the, the hypocrisies that came with trying to recruit black troops at a time when politicians in Paris still hadn't actually abolished slavery. And I want to touch briefly on on the prejudice and racism that you, you've just mentioned there. You know, obviously, we've been discussing the, the prejudice experienced by non-French European soldiers. I presume that these black soldiers experienced even greater discrimination. You know, wh- what did that look like? Did that look like uh, prevention of career advancement or, or positions of inferiority or relegation to to more undesirable tasks? How did that play out in reality? Yeah, so I mean, in general, being black was much more important than you know your your origin within the French colony. So um, black troops were, in general, you know, given an inferior status um, for the most part in the units that were comprised mostly of black troops that existed during the 1790s. Blacks could serve as officer, or excuse me, as soldiers and as sub-officers, but they weren't allowed to serve, um, you know, as commissioned officers. Those regiments were commanded by white troops or by white men. You know, there's a lot of evidence that even in cases where blacks were eligible for promotion to the higher ranks, you know, they were discriminated against. Um, there is certainly, you know, I found anecdotal evidence of white officers writing, you know, very racist things, you know, to their superiors, saying things like, you know, I, I will not have black troops serving in my unit. You know, or, you know, don't don't send the black regiment to this city because I don't want them in, in my garrison, you know, um, because they're black. So, I mean, certainly there, there's a lot of evidence of racism, probably stuff that's not really <laughs> that surprising. Although I suppose in, in, to a certain extent, it is surprising in the context of the revolution when, you know, at least nominally, 
Um, there was supposed to be a, a commitment to emancipation. Although I will say, you know, I mean, there, there are some markers of, of a commitment to equality, one of which, which actually makes, you know, your job as an historian harder, is that um, the French revolutionaries, for the most part, stopped re- recording in their records who was black and who was white. Um, you know, they had done that under the old regime, but in sort of a, you know, a marker of the egalitarian spirit of record keepers during the revolution, they stopped recording that. So it's hard to even know whether troops are necessarily black or not. I mean, usually you can infer it if you're looking at records, um, you know, based on, on various various factors. But there was at least that egalitarianism. They thought that it was no longer okay to record someone's race. It certainly it goes back to what we were talking earlier around a, a contradiction between the kind of cosmopolitan universal rhetoric that the the revolution espoused and and then the the what what actually occurred in practice that that differed from theory. Well, the final group uh, of soldiers that I want to discuss today, which which were again considered foreign, but in a, in a different sense, and actually had a, a much more different experience than some of the other foreign troops that we've been discussing, is the role of a French Jewish soldiers. So. So prior to the revolution, French Jews were not considered citizens, and it did take a few years until that that process that of citizenship had occurred. How did Jewish participation in the army and in the National Guard help to transform uh, French Jews from being considered as foreigners into being considered as, or at least by some, as citizens? So you're right. I mean, under the old regime, Jews were essentially treated as a foreign group living in France, and they basically lived in their own communities. Um, you know, they they were they had their own juridical system, obviously their own religious practices, and they they were you know a nation within a nation essentially. Early in the revolution, the revolutionaries decided that they should extend citizenship rights to certain Jews um, in 1790, and then later in 1791, they extended them to all Jews. Um, I argue in the book that you know military service was important because it was sort of the first act by which Jews, or at least many Jews, were able to demonstrate their commitment to the new French, um, you know, the, the the revolutionary regime, and then later to the republic. Because it was one thing to declare Jews citizens, but you know, it's another thing to actually integrate Jews into the French national community, especially Jews who, again, had until that point lived entirely apart from French, um, you know, from other people living in France. Um, so, you know, a number of Jews, you know, probably at least two or 3,000 and maybe much more. It's really hard to know. You know, I mean, for the most part, too, you know, the Jewish identity was not noted in, in recruitment registers. So it's hard to to like do the counting in that sense. But there were certainly very large numbers of Jews who served in um, the National Guard, some in the Line Army, some even in these um, foreign legions, <laughs> like the German Legion actually included um, a French Jew. Um, who probably spoke German? That's probably why he enlisted in that legion. But he was not of Jew or not of German origin. So yeah. So I mean, basically, the story is that you know, once the French government decided it wanted to include Jews within the nation, it encouraged the enlistment of Jews, and Jews, for their part, you know, embraced their newfound ability to to serve in the army, which is sort of the the counter story to the treatment of foreigners who, you know, despite having been well integrated into the army before the revolution were excluded suddenly and forcefully once the revolutionaries decided that they no longer wanted foreigners to be part of the nation. Was there a debate about Jewish soldiering amongst either the revolution's leaders or the leaders of the various Jewish communities? Did did, did one side embrace military service as a tool for forging 
the citizens out of foreigners more than the other party? So, yeah, I mean, kind of both groups did. I mean, you know, among non-Jewish French politicians, there was a push to um, use the army to, you know, help prove, to help demonstrate that Jews could be citizens just like anyone else. Um, and of course, you know, serving in the army is a great marker of your, your patriotic commitment, or it became that during the revolution. It wasn't before. <laughs> um, so you had, you know, some French politicians who favored Jewish integration, sort of leveraging the army as this toward this purpose. I mean, Abbe Gregoire is the most famous. He's a guy who had written um, early in the revolution about the importance of integrating Jews into um, the French national community. And he also, you know, spoke in the National Assembly celebrating the, the military service of Jews in other countries and saying the French should take advantage of Jewish military service in the same way. You know, there were more conservative factions, um, especially among some, um, you know, some, some politicians who were also Catholic clergy. There was some hostility toward Jewish military service, but that was, you know, just sort of reflected, I think, broader reservations about Jewish integration into the new national community. Um, as for Jews themselves, I mean, it's it's hard. <laughs> and the Jewish community at the time, too, in France, I should note, was very diverse. You had Sephardic Jews who, for the most part, were well off and were already, you know, got along well with, with, with French civilians. You also had Ashkenazi Jews who lived in the East and were typically very poor and were, you know, spoke um, Yiddish or German and, um, you know, were, were very far removed from mainstream French culture. It's it's hard to know what exactly a lot of these guys or what what Jewish community leaders were saying. Although there is certainly evidence that you know um, at least later in the revolution, Jewish fathers were you know bringing their their sons to go sign up for basically the draft registers. For example, you know there are signs that synagogues were celebrating French military victories and celebrating Jewish military service with special ceremonies and things like that. So. I, I suspect that, you know, if I could look at those sources better, I, I would find that they would just confirm the story that Jews themselves were seizing on their military service to sort of celebrate their newfound, um, you know, integration into into a national community from which they had been very much excluded prior to 1789. So it sounds like, from what we've been discussing, that the experience of French Jews differed significantly from others who were were considered, you know, foreign in in reference to European soldiers as well as black soldiers. How did that experience differ, and did that play out to things like you mentioned before that um, there was a limit to uh, the ranks that the that black soldiers could ascend to? Did you have a do you have did you have a similar case uh, in the sense of Jewish soldiers, or did you have French Jews who were allowed to attend formal institutions of military instruction, for example? How did, how did that experience differ between? The, the experience of French Jews and these other foreign groups that weren't embraced as citizens. So in general, the French Jews enjoyed a much more positive experience. Um, you know, there's some evidence of hostility toward them. You know, you have some petitions, for example, written by non-Jewish French soldiers complaining about Jews being promoted into the officer ranks and things like that. But in general, um, there were a number of Jews who became officers in the Revolutionary Army um, none at the time became a general. That didn't happen until later in the 19th century. But there was still a lot of promotion. There were Jews who went to elite French military academies. Um, so by and large, I mean, Jews faced very few barriers, even at a time when you know black troops continued to face a lot of barriers and foreigners were being basically barred from the army altogether. So would it be fair to say then that the experience of foreign Europeans 
blacks and Jewish soldiers, they, they, had, they, they all experienced three very different experiences of the French armed forces during the initial years of the, of the revolution and the revolutionary wars. Yep, I think that's fair. And I mean, I think it's, it's all contingent upon sort of the vision that the, that the revolutionaries formed of how these different groups should, um, you know, be integrated into or contribute to the French nation. That's really what shaped their experience in the army. So I suppose to wrap up, what what lessons, if any, do you think modern day France, with its with its French Foreign Legion that still exists today, or, or for that matter, other modern day nations, what lessons do you think that they could learn from the experience and treatment of non-citizen soldiers in the French army during the period that we've been discussing? <laughs> it's an interesting question, right? And historians are always trained to talk about the past and try to avoid giving advice about the present, but unless they don't, I guess. But um, yeah, I mean, so you ask about the Foreign Legion. I think the French actually today, and this is, I don't want to say unique because probably you could think of another country that does something similar, but, um, you know, the French are rare in that they still have a foreign contingent in the army today, but they still use the Foreign Legion today in very much the same way that they used the Foreign Legions in the early 1790s, which is to say that it's a sort of it's an army apart from the regular army. It has a different status. I mean, today it's actually celebrated in a lot of ways, but historically it wasn't. Historically, the modern French Foreign Legion was um, at, at times seen as sort of a lackluster, you know, second tier contingent within the French army. Um, it's used to go fight wars where it would be politically risky for the French government to send actual French troops because, you know, the French public tends to care less, you know, if legionnaires are, are killed fighting in, you know, West Africa or uh, North Africa or wherever else the Legion might be deployed today than they would be if, you know, French nationals were killed there. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's a lesson. I think it's an observation about um, how France still treats foreigners in the army today. You know, it's actually surprising how little has changed since the late 18th century or early 19th century in that regard. And in terms of, you know, the treatment of foreigners more generally, um, you know, I mean, France is a country that, you know, much more than the United States or other places that are very ethnically diverse, um, or I should say other democracies that are very ethnically diverse. France is a place that historically, since the revolution, has really clung fiercely to this idea that, you know, in France, the only thing that matters is your political commitment to the French national community. Race is not supposed to matter. Ethnicity is not supposed to matter at all. Religion is not supposed to matter. Much more so than, you know, even in the United States, where nominally, right, since 1863, I suppose, we're all, you know, American citizens, regardless of race. But in practice, um, you know, it, it's been the official policy of the, the American government to not always respect this idea that it's a homogenous national community, regardless of ethnic or, or, or other markers. Um, in France, that hasn't been the case and, you know, I don't know. I mean, France is a place today that, that faces some real trouble regarding ethnic difference and tensions between different ethnicities. I don't know how to solve them. I don't know if, you know, maybe I've thought some days that my book suggests that, you know, the French have been living a lie for the last 200 years and they should just admit that ethnic tension is going to be a problem in the Republic and they can't sort of pretend it away by just insisting that it doesn't exist and everyone's just a French citizen. Maybe they need to think of new ways of thinking about how they treat minority groups. You know, maybe some of these minority groups don't want to be treated as if, you know, in, in you know, or at least under the guise of, you know, being exactly equal to French citizens, 
because the reality is that they're not, right? I mean, they tend to be much poorer. They tend to be given access to many fewer resources, but nonetheless, the French pretend that everyone's the same. Maybe they were doing similar things with the army in the 1790s, um, you know, trying to, again, sort of live a lie and pretend that the army was a homogenous whole when it was not. So I don't know. I could ramble on about this. I wish I knew how to solve, you know, modern France's problems with <laughs> ethnic um tensions and, and, you know, I mean, I'm thinking especially, you know, now, obviously, about Islamic communities in France and terrorism in France related to that and tensions between different ethnic groups that seem to be intensifying because of a lot of the violence that has, that has happened in the last five years or so involving some of these communities. I don't know how to solve all those problems. But, you know, I guess if there's one thing I, w- I would recommend, it would be that the French should, should sort of step away to a certain extent from this this fiction that France is a place where all difference can be subsumed by political commitments to the French Republic because, you know, in point of fact, they never have been, not even since the earliest days of the revolution. I think that at least being transparent about that would maybe do something. Yeah, I think uh, more broadly, I find myself in a similar position to you where it, it's it's one of those problems that not only France, but a, a range of countries face, uh, you know, in, in, the, in Western democracies. And it's definitely in the... I hope it's not in the too hard to solve bucket, but it's definitely in the hard problem to solve bucket. Um, yeah, so I mean, maybe the French have to do so. Maybe there's hope. Maybe eventually somebody will figure it out. Well, well, uh, I suppose I, I did say you know I'd only need a, you know just over an hour of your time, and we're clocking up to almost an hour and a half now. So thank you so much for for taking the time to discuss the experience of non-citizen soldiers in the early years of the revolution. I've absolutely loved diving into the details of the topic and it's been a pleasure to have you on the show and to bombard you with a, with a huge list of questions. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much, Will. And thanks to your listeners. <laughs> it's been fun. Thank you for listening to episode 29, Foreigners in the French Army. If you'd like to know more about Dr. Tazi's work, I've put some links in the show notes and on the website. In the next episode of the regular show, we'll be returning to the main narrative as we examine the early months of the French Revolutionary Wars. The new Brousseauan ministry will be presented with a multitude of challenges, and not just challenges originating from setbacks on the frontiers. A reminder that if you've enjoyed today's show, please do support the podcast by telling your friends, your family and your colleagues about Grey History. Also, if you can't wait for the next episode of Grey History, a reminder that episodes 27 and 28 are ready and waiting for all Patreon supporters of the show. By donating a dollar or more per regular episode, you can gain access to a range of bonus content and support Grey History as I try to transform the show from a hobby into a full-time podcast. For literally the price of half a cup of coffee, you can make a much greater difference than you might think. As always, thank you for listening, stay safe, and have a great day. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.